Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world and discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. In this episode, we present a panel discussion on the nature of human factors in surgery, presented by Peter Brennan, consultant oral and maxillofacial surgeon, Louise Cousins, trainee general surgeon, Neil Taylor, British Airways pilot and trainer, and Graham Shaw, also a British Airways pilot and director of Critical Factors, a consulting and training service for professionals operating in safety critical environments. This discussion will focus on the main concepts in human factors training and how these can be applied to surgery to create stronger surgical teams and improve patient safety. to this Royal College of Surgeons of England podcast on human factors. Uh, my name is Peter Brennan. I'm a surgeon based on the South Coast. Uh, I have a particular interest uh, in human factors and patient safety with, with a recent PhD. Now, why are we talking about human factors? Well, the clues um, really in the title, human. Uh, as humans, uh, we make lots of mistakes. Uh, we work as part of a team. We have to interact with others. We have to interact with equipment. And wherever we work, um, our risk of error is always there. And of course, working with others and things, you know, risk, risk just goes up. So understanding human factors, um, empowering teams, lowering gradients, all of that just improves patient safety uh, and it makes for so much better team working. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Louise, who's uh, a trainee in Northern Ireland and um, two British Airways captains, uh, Graham and Neil. Now, I need to make one thing absolutely clear. We cannot compare aviation to medicine and surgery, but we can learn so much from other high reliability organizations. Um, I wonder if you'd like to introduce yourself. Louise, Louise. So my name's Louise. I am one of the surgical trainees in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm a general surgical trainee with a specialist interest in breast surgery. I have been involved with the Royal College of Surgeons England in um, rewriting um, a course, the systemic training and acute illness recognition and treatment. And of course, one of those chapters includes a chapter on human factors, which I, I helped to co-write. And I just find it a really interesting and exciting topic and a topic that I feel as trainees and juniors, we should be learning more about and being more aware of and being more self-aware and um, really using that to the, the, the maximum that we can whenever we are looking after patients and working together as a team. No, thanks very much, Louise. Um, Neil, I wonder if you could perhaps introduce yourself. Well, ho- hello, everybody. Um, my name's Neil, um, and uh, as mentioned, um, I'm a British Airways um, airline pilot, um, and I've been flying for British Airways for about um, 30 years, and I was in the Royal Air Force for 10 years before that. Um, the last 15 years, um, I've spent as a trainer with British Airways, so I'm one of those pilots who takes um, other pilots into our simulators um, and um, and conducts uh, uh, usually four-hour sessions of training um, at a time. And I think um, people always think of um, flying airline as being a very technical um, job or flying anything being a very technically focused job, and of course it is um, exactly the same as a healthcare professional. Um, 
But in training, we concentrate very, very much on the human factor. As Peter mentioned, um, we are humans, and there is definitely the um, possibility that as humans, we will make uh, errors or omissions. Um, so we're very, very interested in how um, the, our pilots uh, perform together in the simulator. Um, and we focus far more on those human factors than we do on the technical side. Um, yes, just exactly what you say, Neil, in surgery, really. Um, so, you know, as trainees, we learn the craft, uh, we take the exams, uh, we have our formal assessments by, by the trainers, uh, and, then we, and then we go out into the big wide world as a consultant. Um, our technical skills are, um, are there. Everyone takes those for granted. And, you know, they evolve, they develop, you get expertise. And what we really need to focus on is the so-called non-technical skills. Those, those are the sort of areas where we're gonna where we're gonna make a mistake, and uh, you know people just focus on those technical skills. It's the non-technical skills that are so important. Um, Graham, perhaps I can hand over to you to introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name's Graham Graham Shaw. I'm the founder and director of Critical Factors, which is a professional skill sharing consultancy, taking skills and knowledge from aviation and sharing them with other safety critical professions. Uh, our work with uh, human factors began with uh, a journey down to the cardio catheter lab at St George's uh, Hospital London, where we then went on to develop an innovative human factor training program. And recently, we've been producing a substantial training course for Health Education England in human factors. So, yeah, when we're learning new skills, we there's a, a huge focus on learning the clinical knowledge and the procedural steps to understand how to carry out those procedures but actually the non-technical skills are really essential as well how we work as a team while carrying out those procedures how we communicate how we keep our situational awareness how the process is being led all these things come together and they're really really important but once those procedural steps are, are understood, it's very important to focus then on the bigger picture of how all those skills pull together to deliver healthcare safely and effectively. No, thanks very much. And uh, um, can I um, can I ask a question now? Uh, all of us are going to answer this one differently. So, uh, what do we understand by the term human factors? Um, let me come back to you, Graham. Then, if I can, and uh, what do you understand by the term human factors, Graham? So the term human factors is a very broad term. And the way we think of it is that it encompasses everything from the, the systems and the processes that define the work that we do, down to how we interact as humans with the equipment that we use to carry out that work, and then also how we as individuals perform, and then as a collection of individuals, how we work together as a team. I think got long gone are the days when any single individual could carry out the, the the challenging tasks of managing modern healthcare. So working together as a team is hugely important. So any human factors within how we work individually, of course, are relevant, but they become amplified and, and in, more introduced once we form teams. So there's, it's a broad definition, but that sort of covers everything. Um, thanks very much, Graham. Um, Louise, I want to come to you as a trainee, and um, I mean, you mentioned Graham about working as part of a team, and that and that's what we do in surgery. So, um, how do you feel, Louise, at the team brief 
Um, you know, do you feel included as a trainee? Do you feel able to speak up if there if there's an issue? How um, how do you how do you perceive it? And how do you go about uh, lowering that authority gradient? I mean, maybe maybe that's a difficult question for you for you as a trainee, but I just like your perspective on it. So I suppose from a trainee perspective, um, there have been many different situations where I have been working within different teams and how the teams have been managed maybe and how teams have worked well and how teams have maybe not worked so well together. So I think everybody has those experiences of a good working team and then maybe a team that that needs needs some um, good um, team working um teaching or um, other skills to help them work better together. So I have been in in different scenarios where I felt that the team has worked. I felt that the team has been a supportive and encouraging team, which is um, good qualities to have within your team. But then there may be other teams where I felt maybe that I, I can't share my opinion as freely as others. And I suppose it's addressing that and maybe that that may be issues on on my behalf or maybe the whole team in general and it's being aware of how the team works together and being aware of of yourself as well and how you interact with the team I suppose as a trainee there there may feel to be some form of hierarchy but I think we all need to realize that it's not a hierarchy it's a different people have different roles and responsibilities within the team and it is understanding and communicating everybody's role and responsibility so that everybody can interact together rather than it being a hierarchy it is an interaction between different people of different level of expertise rather than it being hierarchical I can't even say that word rather than it being a hierarchy (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I guess there, ha- there has to be some sort of authority gradient, some sort of hierarchy. In other words, in other words, the consultant is ultimately responsible. But, but what we should be doing is, um, is lowering that gradient so that, so that all the team feels an equal and valued member. You know, that, that's what's really, really important to me. I mean, Neil, you've done, you've done some work with some Georges, haven't you, around, around the power of the team brief and how, um, how useful that can be to bring people on side um, or the opposite, if a, if a team brief is not done well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to uh, add very quickly to what Graham and um, Louise said uh, um, about uh, uh, how do we define human factors, um, they they pretty much said it all, but uh, very much it is this um, humans working together in a team. And um, for, you know, for me, one of the key things is, is that awareness of um, how our actions um, affect the team. Um, and... Um, and, and ultimately, hopefully, uh, uh, if we work effectively, that um, the team produces a better result. Um, but to answer your question, um, Peter, about um, the briefing, um, there are so many aspects to a briefing. We could probably do a whole podcast just about um, just about briefing. But um, but the aim the aim of it right at the beginning of the day is um, is to potentially uh, we, well the first thing we want to do is sort of set the tone for the day. Um, and hopefully that's an open, inclusive, friendly tone for the whole team, such that they can go through the whole day um, contributing effectively um, and, and and looking after each other. We're looking for support. So when I when I go to work, I, yes, I'm in charge, as you say. Somebody's got to be in charge. But um, if my first officer um, does something, well, I hope that every time I go to work, the, the first officer does something which makes our 
um, our working day more effective and ultimately safer. So briefings are a really important part of the day because typically, especially the, the the first introductory briefing at the beginning of the day where you know, you're, you're forming together as a team and it may be people that you've worked with before. It might be people who are new to working with you. Uh, the, there is a saying that you form an impression of someone in the first few seconds, I think seven seconds, they say, uh, of meeting them. So setting that tone, having that initial impression is really, really important. So it's about setting a tone in which people understand what your expectations of them are as a leader, but also making them comfortable that they can contribute, that they can raise queries if they're not entirely clear what's going on. And finally, most importantly, that they feel they can speak up if there's anything that's concerning them, because you know you want their support as the old team workers, but also you want their protection. They they may have spotted something that you really haven't yourself, and you need them to to tell you. I mean, there's lot there's lots of different ways of lowering, isn't there? You have to actively empower the team and and introduce yourself. My name's Peter. You know, welcome. Uh, um, you know, you're you're a valued member of things. Please, please speak up if you have any concerns. You know, just ask me a question, whatever. I'm not going to bite your head off. I'm not going to shout. I'm not going to get angry because because people people live in fear of the consultant. It still it still exists, and you've got to you've got to reduce that. Um, and by doing that, uh, everyone comes to work happy. You look forward to coming to work, and you perform so so much better, don't you? Really. Um, Louise, um, coming back to you, I mean, how how would you how would you maybe deal then with a, um, a difficult and in inverted commas consultant where you where you felt there was an issue um, and you wanted to challenge, but but the said consultant was uh, was not prepared to listen. I mean, are there any are there any tools we can use to to help us in that in that situation? So that is a difficult situation. Um... Going back to the point, I definitely feel that I am more effective within my day-to-day work whenever I do feel valued and appreciated within the team. And I can definitely feel that, you know, whenever the team works together for their common goal and they work actively together, there's a better outcome in the end, but people actually do feel that they are more involved, they feel more empowered and as well as it being a good outcome for the patient, it's a great outcome for the team having achieved their goal together. Um, If we think about how you interact whenever there may be a difficult interaction with a senior, um, that's when communication and people's communication skills really come into play. And it's not really something that somebody can read in a textbook. This is something that we have to be aware of ourselves, how we communicate the instances that we communicate and in what way do we communicate and sometimes how we communicate badly and we need to be aware that there are times that we may not communicate very well ourselves we may have different algorithms of how to go through communication but we are as we have already said human and there are times that we communicate well and we communicate badly and being aware of those situations is so very important If there was a difficult situation such as you have described where you may or may not agree with um, your senior's opinion or or plan, that's when communication really comes into play where you really have to take time, take time aside from whatever busy ward round you are doing 
and explain in a direct and clear and non-confrontational way that you are accepting their opinion however you want to discuss a different opinion which may be equally as valid and to try to use open direct communication to resolve that that kind of situation that you've described yeah i mean that's um, that's the key to it is it um, isn't it in a non-confrontational way i mean as soon as you become confrontational tensions start to rise things escalate um people start to get angry i mean we've all we've all been in that situation where you where you shout at someone and then and then you regret it afterwards. You know, if you if you think about it, you know, I think 75% of people that get angry with someone else, they regret it. Um, you know, should ne- you should never get into that position. So, so in human factors terms, we we talk about the halt scenario, don't we? So if you're if you're hungry or if you're angry or lonely or tired, any of those four scenarios, then you just just need to step back and uh, um, you know take a few seconds. Um, I wonder if I can come on to communication then, because that's a really, really important area. And I think almost 80% of um, of referrals to the GMC are not due to technical expertise in surgery. They're due to communication issues uh, and behavioral type issues. Um, guys, perhaps I could ask I could ask you as the as the expert communicators when you're when you're talking to um, air traffic control and to and to the crew and things. How, how you ensure your communication is effective and understood? Well, one thing that's particularly effective and is becoming promoted far more in, in healthcare is the use of readback. And, and that's something that we in aviation frequently do continuously, really, with air traffic control when we're, we're um, sending messages back and forwards. But actually, the, the gold standard really is ensuring not only that the message has been received and understood, but also that it's been actioned upon as well, because that's a separate level again. So I, I guess if, if something is a, a critical piece of information and you're expecting something to follow on from it, then you need to keep that situational awareness in your own mind of where things are at, where you expect them to be, and ensure that not only you got that read back and that it's been verified, but that the action has been followed through and that the state that you're trying to get something to has actually been achieved. I mean, you highlight, you highlight the ambiguity and uh, I guess in surgery, we've got, we've got safety critical moments or safety critical parts of the procedure when we have to convey the exact information to, to others that has to be understood. It, um, not necessarily heard, but has to be understood. And, um, I mean, I think I think it's important not to use pronouns as well if you're if you're um, if you want to convey things. So if you're if you're giving a drug, actually say what that drug is rather than saying I'm going to give it or that or something. You know, there's been several um, chemotherapy errors, um, fatal errors actually, given intrathecal vincristine, for example, um, over over a telephone call when the when the trainee said said to the consultant, I'm going to give it into the spine and. You know, if they'd have said, I'm going to give being Christine, that would never would have happened. I mean, you you mentioned about situational awareness. Um, and I wonder, uh, Neil, if you can if you could just give us a, a sort of pricey of what of what you understand by the term. It's um, it's probably a, um, a difficult question to answer, isn't it, on a podcast? But but what do we mean by situational awareness and how is that relevant to uh, to surgery? Well, I think um, it, it's um, our awareness that we develop of our environment. And what's happening in that environment, um, and and uh, and also uh, taking it sort of to the next stage and projecting that ahead 
um, to what might be going to happen sort of in the near term future and maybe even the longer term future. But the key thing we're talking about today is, is that as a team, we want um, high situation awareness. There's no point in me, you know, me or any one of us having a high awareness of what's going on if the team have got no idea. So we're going back to communication again, where we want to communicate with the team to ensure that the whole team has, um, has high situational awareness. Louise, I wonder if I can ask, ask you then, at the team brief, do you, do you um, get good situational awareness as part of the team by, uh, by asking the what-if scenarios? You know, what's going to happen if, um, if we do this particular operation and something doesn't go quite well, or what happens if we're going to cut that vessel? Is that, is that something you, you would routinely do at the team brief? So um, in some situations and circumstances, yes, there are the, the complex patients that you actively verbalise as a, as a team. Um, the what ifs, paying attention to yourself and your patient um, and paying attention to those details, um, evaluating what that actually means. Um, there's no point in paying attention to it if we don't think about it and extrapolate it into the evaluating it and working out the what ifs and what could go wrong and unexpected steps in, in, in major surgery. Um, I absolutely love situational awareness. Um, I, I really think it's an excellent thing for us to to practice and to be aware of. It's a little bit like being the Sherlock Holmes in a situation and understanding what's going on around you, understanding your environment, understanding your patient, and then actually putting that together and thinking, what might the next steps be? What might actually happen next? What do I have to plan and, and prepare for? Um, so I really think situational awareness is, is an excellent thing for people to, to practice to learn it's like making a cup of tea in somebody's house that you don't know their kitchen you, you might get to the end point of a cup of tea but it might take forever to make the cup of tea and the water that you boiled maybe a couple of minutes ago may not be at the right temperature because you don't know your environment you don't know your situation and therefore you weren't really as effective at making the simple thing of a cup of tea which if you were in your own environment or if you were aware of your environment, you would have made a cup of tea perfection and it would have been so um, efficient. But being aware of your situation um, is, is a little bit like that. So really, I, I, I love situational awareness. Um, I could definitely do it better myself. I think the team could do it better themselves um, on the ward with patients. I can definitely think of circumstances in in the not so distant past that if if maybe we'd just been a little bit more situationally aware and predicted what if certain things could have happened quicker for, for our patient and certain things could have happened in a different way for our patient as well so it, it really is something that um that I rank with real high importance in in our day-to-day -day, um working environment. I mean, I guess, um, I guess when we're when we're concentrating, we're we're operating. We can we can lose situational awareness, can't we? We can become tunnel visioned. Um, and one of the classic ones is you lose all sense of time. So you're 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 operating, and suddenly three hours has gone has gone past. Um, and if you've empowered the team at the start, you know your scrub nurse will tap you on the shoulder or say, you know, Peter, Peter, you've been operating now for three hours. It's time for us us as a team to take a break and. Um, and it's like, oh, is it really, um, is that the time? You know, so, so that's, um, you know, it's team situation awareness as much as individual, isn't it, really? Um, can, I, can I just ask, um, ask you about distraction and multitasking? Because, you know, we're operating, we're, 
we're often distracted. Someone comes in, can I just ask you about this while while you're doing a difficult dissection or whatever, and how, how you think that that impacts on your on your performance. So I read somewhere that the brain can only have something like seven or eight things to the forefront of the brain at the time. I really think that's a gross, gross overestimation sometimes of what what we can have going on. And I'm sure everyone from every level has been aware of being in the middle of doing tasks and getting different bleeps and getting interactions. And, and already you have in your head about the multiple other patients that you need to see or that need theatre afterwards. Um, and especially whenever you're in theatre and getting distractions like that, those are the times that you need to be aware that that things are stressful. Your stress levels are increased. You may or may not know it, but they are. Um, your energy levels may or may not be decreased. And as we said earlier, we, we may have forgotten to eat for the last number of hours. So we need to be self-aware in those situations and circumstances. Whenever you are getting a distraction, whether it is in the middle of an operation or whether it is as a more junior doing a different task on the ward, the task that you are involved with at that time um, you need to either complete it or assess in your head what the urgency of the distraction is um, and communication with the person that is, you know, trying to convey further message is important to say, look, can actually that wait? I will come back to you or this is on my list. There are other people in the team, so it may not be you that needs to deal with this. You may be able to delegate or you may be able to escalate or you may be able to add it to a list that you can address at a, at a later stage. But kind of that task management is a really difficult concept to learn. It was really difficult whenever I went from being a medical student to being an FY1 on, on the ward. That task management of making a list, you know, prioritizing the list and then also delegating escalating as well and using everybody else in the team around you you can't be expected to do everything and if you do feel that everything is your job you will not be able to effectively work for every single job you have to be able to delegate escalate and I guess that brings us back to the to the briefing doesn't it and you know, saying to the team that there may be safety critical or very complex parts of the surgery where you don't want to be distracted. Um, I mean, Graham and Neil, we talk, we talk about a sterile cockpit, don't we, and um, things. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit about, about that in surgery. Well, we have um, certain parts of um, uh, the operation um, that are deemed to be the critical phases of the operation. Um, so it, it typically, um, in the context of flying an airliner, that would be um, from the moment that you taxi out for takeoff um, until the takeoff is completed um, and the aircraft is safely established in the cruise. So during that time, um, we have a rule. It's actually uh, it's a requirement that we, we don't talk about anything non-operational. Um, so whilst it might not be necessary to go quite that far to, to say that you, um, any non-operational chat is banned for certain phases, it could be a point at the briefing to say, um, do you know, that we, we've identified a real pinch area today that's that's critical with with the threat of um, things going, you know, uh, becoming more complicated. So at that point, please, we not want the whole team concentrating um, on what's going on um, and having an input and, and having that high SA that we talked about uh, talked about earlier. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of debate about um, sterile cockpit and sterile um, environment in operating theatres. And obviously, minimising distraction is key at, at times where focus needs to be intense. 
I, I think sometimes, though, we have to be careful with creating rules as well, because rules are, are often put together with, with the very best of intention. But it needs to be clear as well that it's not necessarily complete silence where there's an overriding need for communication to take place. If someone is a junior in a team and, and they're, they're told that now is a sterile time and they mustn't speak, how are they going to feel um, if they need to raise a concern, if, if they have something that they're maybe just a bit unsure about and, and perhaps is a worry, but then they're a little bit intimidated perhaps by a rule that says it's now a silent focus time. So you need to be a little bit careful. And, and again, the briefing is the ideal time to discuss that and say, look, you know, have a mini brief before that that silent focus period and say, right, okay, now is, is, is a quiet time. We don't want distractions. But obviously, if you have a concern, please still feel free to, to raise it. So you know, these are great ideas and great to share these concepts across, but sometimes maybe with just that little bit of sense of awareness and, and, and adaptation. That's that's so important to look look after yourself um, before you before you treat your patients really and um, uh, and we mean by that take um, taking regular breaks you know don't operate for seven eight hours nonstop you would you wouldn't drive for that length of time so why should you operate for that amount of time um, and if uh, if you stop after about three to four hours um, take a fifteen twenty minute break you actually catch that time up um, you know. Um, how many of us go home at the end of the day with a headache because we have we haven't drunk uh, one to two liters of water, and if you lose about a kilogram, uh, I think it's one to two kilograms of body weight in water loss, uh, your cognitive function falls by about twenty percent. So it happens very slowly. You don't even know it's happening, but uh, just just so important to make to make sure you drink and you eat and things regularly. I mean, on the flight deck, you're um, you're encouraged, aren't you, to have um, to have regular uh, water and food um, it's brought in for you i think isn't it well yes it it, it, it is uh, brought in well there's nothing to stop us actually going out um <laughs> to get it if uh, if necessary but if we happen to be outside um, the flight deck anyway but um but yes absolutely and i mean it happens it's a particularly dry and dry environment but i'm guessing that an air-conditioned operating theater is probably quite dry as well um and so the risk of dehydration is that much more. So, um, yeah, it, it is vitally important. And and uh, I, I take a bottle of a, a sort of one and a half litre bottle of water in at the beginning of the flight and sort of put it beside me and think, right, well, I need to have drunk that by the time we get to halfway across the Atlantic. Um, I mean, most uh, most of these things are even more important now, aren't they, during, during the pandemic with uh, with the use of PPE, um, you know, increased perspiration. Uh, I guess communication is reduced, loss of peripheral vision, um, and things. So, um, so Louise, I guess, um, I guess, pandemic and things. Do you do you think human factors are even more important now than ever? Yeah, as you mentioned, the communication uh, issue is is has been made increasingly more difficult with the extra level of um, barriers between yourself and your patients. Um, and barriers between yourself and other colleagues. I, I find it really difficult, obviously, with the, the PPE, with the, the mask and with the visor. I feel very far away from my patient. I feel that they, it's very difficult to use non-verbal communication. 
I use a lot of facial expressions. I'm, I'm quite expressive that way. And I find it very difficult just simply using um, words and the tone of my voice to actually convey my message because it's not all just about the words that you say. It is about how you say it and it is about somebody's facial expression. And I find that I, that is one of the main things that I find so difficult with this current um, global pandemic and I'm working within healthcare. The the PPE, the mask and advisor, it, it's, it's, a, it's an extra barrier between myself and my patient and myself and and colleagues and that is hugely hugely challenging yeah absolutely i mean i mean you touch on another thing about about non non-verbal communication so as uh, so when we communicate words really only form about 10 percent, don't they of um, of communication so so ppe is very very difficult um i guess we could carry on talking about human factors all night long but uh um all day long depending on what time of day or night you're listening to this but um uh, again, concentration, you lose your concentration probably after about half an hour to 40 minutes. So, uh, so I think we'll probably just bring this to, to a close. Um, and have you, got, have you got any final comments, um, Louise, Graham and Neil? Well, a, a key one for me is when you're dealing with teams, and we've alluded to, um, Louise alluded to sort of possibly um, having a difficult conversation with a colleague, Something to bear in mind as professionals, we're always interested in, in what is right, not who is right. Um, and ultimately, that's um, in the context of looking after a patient. Um, it's what's right to, um, to ensure that patient is as safe as possible. Yeah, what I'd like people to do is think back to when they started their journey into healthcare and really focus on protecting the patient. Because that's why they, they everyone comes into to medicine that you know they they care about people and if they have a doubt or a concern that not to feel any sense of authority gradient or reluctance to speak up but really to to think you know that they're not doing this because they're trying to be critical or difficult to anybody but they just want to advocate for their patient uh, and put their interests ahead and raise that concern so it's not a personal floor it's not a criticism it, it's not a it, it's not unreasonable to have any sense of ambiguity just you know let, raise that talk about it and you're doing it on their behalf so from a trainee perspective the the knowledge and kind of clinical skills are yes so important but uh, human factors is an additional skill set that we should not um, forget about and we should really pay attention to and we should really be self-aware and really give human factors the standing that it actually needs within our training to become consultants and to continue on giving the best level of care that we can to our patients. And I guess this is this is something the General Medical Council is now advocating isn't it? It's actually part of training, uh, it's being taught in medical schools now so you know it's, um, it's we need to embrace this and um, Obviously, we want we want the best for uh, our patients, and we want the best for a team, a teams, and we want to come to work happy and excited. Um, and thank you very much indeed to Louise, Graham, and Neil. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to recording more of these podcasts. Um, maybe concentrating on specific areas: crisis management, situation awareness, uh, team working, and such in the future. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to The Theatre wherever you get your podcasts for future episodes. For the latest information and updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.